welcome to the Rio Europe podcast. My name is Lucia Camlor and I'm a private credit senior reporter at Reorg. Joining me today is Aman Kumar, who's a managing director within Oaktree's global private debt strategy. He also serves as co-portfolio manager for the strategy's life science lending platform. I'll be speaking with him about direct lending in the life science sector, documentation, public to private transaction opportunities and fundraising. Thank you very much for joining me today, Aman. I just wanted to start off asking about Oaktree's approach to private credit and in particular to life science lending, since Oaktree is very well known for focusing primarily on sub-investment grade issuers. Perhaps some listeners might not know about your other strategies. So could you explain to us a little bit more about your team and where it sits within Oaktree? Sure, happy to do so. I've been at Oaktree since 2014. Uh, I'm previously worked as a doctor in the UK's National Health Service. I was an ENT surgeon for five years before I made the switch to finance uh, about 12 years ago. And in, in my work in the private credit team, um, essentially, when I started at Oaktree, I was working across different sectors. Um, and we've been investing in life sciences deals since 2013. Uh, and as you fast forward to today, we've now deployed over $4 billion uh, across 45 different deals. Um, and a lot of that has happened in the last six to seven years. Um, and we actually you know, uh, had our own dedicated vehicle and fund for this uh, launch in uh, 2021. In terms of our approach and where we sit uh, across the platform, so I would say the consistent theme for Oaktree's private credit platform um, is primacy of risk control. Uh, and so what that means is in every single deal, we're always looking to maximize uh, the credit returns um, and avoid loses and losses in any given situation. Um, that's particularly relevant uh, from my perspective within life sciences. Um, and so life sciences is one of the first uh, industry verticals um, that we had as a step out strategy within the private credit platform. Um, and so, as I say, uh, this re we've been doing deals since 2013. Uh, we're a top three lender in the space, just given that momentum um, and, you know, given the support of a number of LPs and frankly, the opportunity set we saw, uh, we felt it was an appropriate time in 2021 to actually launch a standalone vehicle dedicated towards life sciences lending. Um, and that maintains the same philosophy. So primacy of risk control, number one, uh, there's a number of levers we use to do this within life sciences deals. It broadly falls into two main categories. One would be, you know, very careful structuring around deals. So um, tranching deals, managing loan to value very carefully at a maximum 25% LTV. And then also focusing on only certain types of companies with specific attributes. So for example, uh, we don't invest in early stage companies. Uh, we only invest in companies that are post-regulatory approval. So that would be post-FDA approval in the United States, for example, uh, so that we can avoid those binary or equity-like risks. Um, uh, and, you know, that's been a very successful approach uh, from our perspective. And so um, that's where we sit. It's a global team uh, of 12 people across LA, New York, and London. Um, and that also is a little bit reflective of the deal flow that we experience uh, around 70% is the U.S., and importantly, though, 30% is ex-US, principally Western Europe and the UK. And where are you seeing opportunities in high growth areas within the life sciences space at the moment? 
So we typically divide life sciences into three main subsectors. Uh, first one would be biopharma, so biotechnology and spec pharma. The second one would be medical devices and equipment. And then the third subsector would be life science services. And although we look at deals across all three, we are primarily interested in biopharma and devices. Um, these are two subsectors we feel have the most complexity, so the highest amount of science, higher barriers to entry. And specifically from a credit perspective, we believe offer the best risk reward for our investors as well. Um, and then, you know, we have a top-down approach whereby we're also doing an additional analysis to ascertain, you know, which types of companies, which end markets are growing at even faster CAGAs over the next five to 10 years. Um, and so, you know, I can name a few now, uh, as we look at it today over the next five to 10 years, you know, areas that we think are going to be very exciting from a lending perspective um, will, you know, fall into a few different buckets. Um, one could be immuno-oncology, so new types of cancer treatments. Uh, we're seeing a, a whole range of different types of gene therapies, for example, coming to market. Another area we really like is rare and orphan diseases. Um, so these are diseases which affect only a limited number of the population, but they tend to be very horrible. Uh, they tend to not have many treatments available for them, or in some cases, no treatments at all. And so again, uh, you know, from a credit perspective, uh, they can be very attractive investment opportunities. Um, and then finally, I would say um, cardiometabolic is another large area uh, that we're targeting as a subsector within biopharma and indeed uh, on the devices side as well. And are there any particular geographies within Europe which you expect will be more active maybe next year in 2024? Yeah, as I look out for next year, so, you know, the world's largest market for life sciences, just to be clear, is the United States. Uh, and mm -hmm. that, you know, it reflects our deal flow around 70% coming from there. But there is a lot of excellent science um, and a lot of excellent companies within uh, Western Europe in particular and the UK. Um, I think our focus right now, if as I look into 2024, um, I think the UK will continue to be, uh, you know, a great source um, for new deals for us. In particular, you know, there's a number of uh, companies which have uh, FDA or EMA approved products um, and require additional launch financing or are looking to do some business business development activities. Um, and then as we look across into mainland Europe, um, I would say yeah, Switzerland is probably another uh, sort of key hub uh, where we've been active previously and I expect to be uh, reasonably active in 2024 and beyond as well. Also in terms of how do you structure your deals, like which are the facilities that are your go-to facilities? Is it mainly Unitranch or how do you usually structure your deals? So I we have a, a reasonable amount of flexibility on our side in terms of structuring, but I would say by far the most common structure we put into place is a first lien senior secure term loan, plus or minus warrants. And I can uh, break that down a little bit. So, um, you know, we're typically the only debt on the company. We're usually the sole lender. Uh, to give you some level of context, our deals range between 75 million and $250 million in size. Average check size today is around 150. Um, and we're usually first lien and secured on all of the assets of the company. Um, typically, we'd have two to three points of OID up front. Uh, similarly, some exit fees at the back end, two to three points, and then a low to mid double digit coupon, which is usually quarterly cash pay. 
Um, that is by far the, the most common structure that we would employ, I would say, sort of more than eight out of 10 deals. Um, wherever possible, we also seek to structure some warrants in the company as well. So we don't take naked equity risk, but uh, we will get exposure to the equity upside in the form of warrants, which are usually struck at the money and detachable from the debt with a seven or a 10 year maturity. So often beyond the term of the loan, we can hold those warrants. Um, and uh, you know, overall, that's been a fairly successful strategy for us. I would say around two thirds of the deals today we're able to negotiate warrants uh, for that equity upside participation. And lastly, we're also able to do some structured royalty investments as well. Uh, I would say it forms perhaps 15 up to 20% uh, of the, the deals that we will do. Um, so it's not a huge focus, um, but nevertheless, uh, we are able, on, when attractive situations present themselves to underwrite royalties either against large products or indeed ideally against a basket of different products mm -hmm. okay and if we take a look at leverage and pricing at the moment like where are you seeing average leverage and pricing for the sector in recent deals so you know le leverage is a, a, a tricky concept when it comes to life sciences lending mainly because we view this as more asset-backed lending And so our approach instead is to utilize loan-to-value, LTV. Um, one of the reasons for this is a lot of these companies, 60% of them are public, um, you know, maybe fairly large companies, uh, maybe generating several hundred million dollars of top-line revenue. However, a lot of these companies are still very much in growth phase and are reinvesting all of that revenue and more back into the company to bring other products on the pipeline to market, maybe for M&A, And so maybe negative EBITDA or negative cash flow for the first few quarters or indeed the first few years of any given loan. Um, and that's fine from our perspective because, you know, we're lending against the assets that we see at inception. So on day one of the actual closing of the loan. And in that scenario, we specifically use loan to value. Um, and the way we analyze that is done internally using a sum of the parts analysis of all of the company's assets with particular focus on the tangible assets, which would fall into two main buckets. So the hard assets, such as real estate or manufacturing facilities. Um, and then the other tangible asset would be the products themselves. So you know, something that is post-FDA or EMA approval in the case of Europe um, is, is a valuable asset and it's fairly straightforward to triangulate what that valuation may be. And then we apply um, a loan to value against that. And Our general rule of thumb is that we won't lend to a company beyond a 25% loan-to-value metric. And we try and maintain that throughout the lifetime of the loan. Um, we utilize tranching in the deals uh, to help us facilitate that. For example, um, if an average check today is 150 million, it would be unusual for me to um, give all of that money on day one. Instead, I might give 75 or 100 million up front. And then two subsequent tranches depending on the company hitting certain credit de-risking milestones uh, that we have set for them um, at the outset. Um, and so that's why the LTV is a fairly powerful uh, metric to manage risk. And in addition to that, you know, we will typically have covenants, some of which may um, be targeted towards that loan to value, either as an incurrence covenant, so preventing the company from adding further debt without meeting the Um, 25% LTV test, or indeed as a maintenance covenants, so such that the company has to remain below that 25% loan to value throughout the lifetime of the loan. In terms of pricing, um, 
I would say, you know, today, uh, you know, the market, given where uh, short-term rates and mid-term rates have moved out to, uh, we have also moved out around about 150 basis points or so over the last 12 months. Um, so, you know, typical pricing on some of the recent deals we've done, just from a fixed income uh, perspective, would be around two and a half points of OID upfront, coupons somewhere between 12 and 13%, uh, typically floating rate today, so SOFA plus seven to 8%. Um, and then, you know, non-call two, non-call three with a sliding scale of prepayment premium thereafter. And finally, in certain cases, particularly the recent deal we did, uh, we'll get a couple of points of uh, exit fees as well. So when you add all of that together and blend it, um, we're essentially solving for around about a 14 to a 15% fixed income return uh, on an IRR basis. Got it. And you were mentioning covenants in terms of documentation. How are you seeing it at the moment? Have you seen it that it has improved for lenders? So one of the things that makes life sciences lending very attractive for us is the fact that it's not commoditized um, and that it is very covenant heavy. Um, you know, Oak Tree's DNA, as you'll know, uh, has really been in you know deep value credit structuring. And we apply all of that to each and every life sciences deal that we underwrite as well. And what I mean by that is each and every company and credit agreement is bespoke. So each and every deal is different. Um, but each one will have at least two, if not three covenants per deal. Um, it's one of the key elements of what we do as part of our underwriting and risk mitigation is on the structuring side. So, for example, we talked about some of the structural levers already around tranching, around utilization of loan to value metrics. Um, but in terms of covenants, for example, we typically have full negative covenants of the companies. Um, usually any kind of restricted payment is not permitted. Um, and that's usually fine with the management teams because any excess dollars, they're usually reinvesting back in the company to continue that growth tra trajectory. Um, and then in terms of other specific covenants that we utilize, uh, typically in every single deal, we'll have at least a minimum liquidity covenant. We'll usually have a performance covenant of some sort. So a company will provide us with a forecast of revenues, let's say, um, and we will yeah, test those uh, revenues on a quarterly basis on some kind of uh, LTM pre-agreed threshold with the companies, let's say 70 or 75% uh, of the target forecast that they've actually given us. Um, we may have an LTV covenant, as I mentioned, either as an incurrence covenant is more typical, sometimes as a maintenance covenant. And finally, in certain circumstances, depending on the company, we may also institute some kind of a cash burn covenant as well. So either around um, OPEX or indeed around CAPEX um, so that it remains within certain thresholds that the company's already communicated to us on day one. Um, and so, as I say, every single deal will have at least two, if not three covenants. Um, and it's an important part uh, of what we do. Um, lastly, I would just add in, in many of these deals, you know, we're either taking a board observer seat or sometimes an outright board seat as well, because we very much view this investment as a strategic partnership with the company, with the management team, with their board. Um, and so given our perspective and our experience in the space, uh, we find that can be valuable um, and an interesting contribution to some of the board meetings as we go forward as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I, I also wanted to, to ask you, Aman, there has been conservative spending within the biotech and biopharma and markets throughout 2023. How has the team coped with this and what do you think are the expectations for activity picking up? 
So, um, you know, the market has certainly been volatile and we've certainly seen a lot of companies um, scaling back certain projects. That said, the level of spending is still very significant. Um, mm-hmm. I would say within the, the sectors that we look at, on an annual basis, companies spend over $200 billion on R&D. Um, and from our vantage point, you know, that is expected to increase at a mid to high single digit CAGR over the next five years as well. And, you know, some of the reasons for this are fairly straightforward. You know, patients still need access to prescription medicines. You know, patients still uh, want to go to hospitals to have surgeries done, uh, demanding for the, the latest innovations and the latest products, particularly as we have aging populations in most areas of the world, which is a key driver for healthcare utilization and new innovation. Um, and I would say overall that, you know, the conservative spending um, in 2023, let's say, versus prior years has been more of an equity story. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we have been seeing is a lot of these companies that uh, particularly, you know, mid to larger size, so five, in some cases, up to 10 billion market cap companies, of which were of those size, let's say, three or four years ago, uh, because of the equity market volatility, you know, they may be half of that today. So two and a half billion to five billion. And a lot of these companies, even though they could raise equity, they don't want to raise equity. The cost of that equity is extremely expensive, particularly if they believe that they can get back uh, to previous market cap size. Uh, And so we've started to actually see a lot of companies over the last 12 to 18 months um, seeking non-dilutive financing such that we have been providing. And I would say to quantify that for you, we've seen a sort of 40 to 50% pickup in terms of our pipeline activity over the last 12 months, um, which I think is reflective of the volatility in the equity markets. Yeah. Um, and now that you mentioned the pipeline, we have seen also a flow of public to private deals this year. And private equity firms have also been able to rely on financing support from direct lenders for P2P deals. Have you seen P2P deals going to direct lenders in the life science sector? Um, we have. Uh, we, you know, we actually closed a deal in uh, September of this year for a company that was publicly listed um, and was taken private by uh, two private equity firms. Um, you know, this is all in the public domain, so I'm happy to, to give you some details on that as well. But, you know, just at a high level, um, I would say we are starting to see a pickup in that interesting M&A activity. Uh, I think it's been driven by, um, you know, really low valuations in certain subsectors within in particular biopharma, but also in medical devices, which is the first time, frankly, we're seeing um, some, some, you know, decreased and distressed type level of valuations, um, I would say in, in several years, at least. Um, and so what we started to see is healthcare focused private equity firms, uh, either individually or in a club deal, actually making the decision to take some of these public companies private um, really with the intention of a couple of things. I think firstly, with the view that, you know, some of the cap structures for these companies are challenging, particularly in the public domain. So where you have a situation where the company needs to raise equity, uh, if they have a convertible bond overhang uh, that they're going to struggle to actually refinance and replace, um, then that can be, you know, one such situation. And then the other one is frankly, um, helping some of these management teams pivot towards profitability sooner rather than later. 
Um, and what's exciting for us as a potential lender is that you know we've started to see situations where you can take one of these companies from public, take it private, and actually use that as a core platform to add on other companies, other products, which will help you amortize some of the high fixed costs that you have, such as a sales force. And so if it's a one product company that's targeting a certain set of physicians, you know, why just sell one product? Why not have three or four products that you can sell to the same range of physicians, um, you know, during the same period of time? It really helps reduce uh, and amortize some of those fixed costs that you have as well. So um, that that's certainly uh, an area that I would expect to continue as we go into 2024. You were mentioning collab deals. Like, would you also consider collabing with other lenders for deals or... We can do that at Oaktree, and we've certainly done it in the past, um, usually as part of a, uh, a syndicate of two, perhaps. Um, I would say typically we're the sole lender in the deals. Uh, I think one of the important things from the Oaktree perspective is that um, we're leading the negotiations and the structuring of the credit agreements. Um, again, that's something important to us, and I think we have a fairly unique perspective on that, uh, given Oaktree's you know, previous DNA. And so, um, I, as I said, nine out of 10 deals, we're typically sole lender, but um, we're certainly on, on certainly in some of the larger deals, uh, happy to uh, participate in, in a club situation as well with a like-minded lender. Mm -hmm. And uh, Aman, we are seeing an environment of sticky high interest rates. How has this affected your strategy and maybe the businesses that you are backing and what are your expectations for next year? Yeah, so we're absolutely we're you know for a lot of companies, uh, particularly those which have or had incumbent debt that was floating rate, it's certainly been challenging. Um, I would say the higher interest rates, um, you know, partly driven by higher inflation, has had both a direct and an indirect impact on the life sciences sector. I think the direct impact is for those companies with existing debt that was floating rate, they're now paying an additional, you know, three hundred. Uh, basis points of cash pay interest on a quarterly basis, which can be a challenge in some cases. Um, but actually, from my perspective, the indirect impact has been more significant, which is, uh, you know, the, the high rates and inflation and, and the volatility that has been resultant uh, within, you know, the biotech market in particular. So one of the indices that we often reference is the um, XBI index in the United States, which is you know down almost seventy percent from its peak, um, and the peak was in February two thousand and twenty-one, and it's not just the depth of the drawdown that's causing the problem; it's also the length of time that it's been going on for, which is now causing a lot of additional problems. So it's already more than two and a half years with no obvious light at the end of the tunnel, and so now many companies are faced with the decisions around extending liquidity runway or pivoting earlier uh, to profitability. Um, you know, the difficult equity market and IPO markets has reduced some of the typical optionality that you see for these companies to raise equity funds when they when they need to. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, some of the management teams that we see are for the first time dealing with some of these challenges. And, you know, the challenges are rising rates. The challenges are them having to now reduce workforce, perhaps for the first time. Uh, and a third challenge would be, you know, rationalizing some of their R&D pipelines, again, all with the hope and expectation to extend liquidity runways. And so from our perspective, um, one of the things we do is you know, work with these companies to help them navigate these situations. 
Uh, as I mentioned, in, in many cases, we may have a board seat or a board observer seat. And we're constantly communicating with the management teams and the boards as to what we're seeing in the wider market, you know, because we very much view this as a strategic partnership. And as we look forward into 2024, again, this is a, a key element of our underwriting is understanding, you know, what is the you know pro forma for our loan? You know, what is in a conservative scenario, the forward liquidity that the company has, you know, at that point in time, fast forward two or three years, you know, what would be the options needed for them uh, to raise additional funds? I would say in most cases now, you know, our loan is the last financing the company would typically need um, and that they should be able to actually drive towards profitability and, and cash flow positive should they wish. Um, and so that's one of the key areas that we keep an eye on and will continue to do so in next year. Mm -hmm. And I finally, I wanted also to, to ask you about fundraising because it has been a challenging environment, but you have managed to fundraise 2.3 billion US dollars. So what do you think are the main takeaways uh, of this and what is your deployment strategy as well? So I think the main takeaways, uh, Luthia, would be that the, the space is large and it's growing rapidly. So the, the demand from companies for non-dilutive financing has only been increasing um, and we expect to continue to do so going forward. It's certainly a lot cheaper than the cost of equity for most of these companies. Um, I think it also reflects the interest in the LP community, certainly my experience in that, you know, folks look at um, life sciences within the remit of direct lending as being non-commoditized. It's fairly complex. There's a limited number of competitive players. And as a result of that, we're able to get outsized returns on these deals, um, which is, you know, first and foremost attractive, you know, to a lot of the LPs. But also, I think another element that people like about life sciences lending is the fact that it's not particularly correlated with the wider economy. Um, you know, whether the GDP is up 5% or down 5%, Again, um, healthcare sales continue to grow typically. Uh, we saw this, for example, during the global financial crisis. And again, the reasons are because patients still need access to prescription medicines and still need to go to hospital for procedures, um, regardless of what's happening in the wider economy typically. Um, and so I, I think you know, that that's one element in terms of our view of, of the raising the, the 2.35 billion. Um, and then in terms of the strategy for deployment, I think what you'll see, it'll be consistent with what we've been doing um, over the last 10 years and across those 45 deals and 4 billion that we've already deployed. Uh, we're gonna stay fairly disciplined and in, in our lane here. So typical check sizes again, between 75 million and 250 million. With the new fund, you know, with some of the co-invests from LPs as well, we can do larger deals up to 500 million in certain select cases. Um, but I would imagine the vast majority will still remain in that 75 to 250 range. Um, our focus will very much be on value add need to have products. And so what that means is uh, these are often life-saving or life-extending technologies and drugs that are coming to market. Um, and we maintain a global approach. So uh, certainly not by design, but looking at the pipeline today as a snapshot, um, I see around 70 to 75%, again, coming from North America with the balance predominantly coming from Western Europe and the UK. Uh, and so overall, I think our approach of being a strategic partner with these companies such that we can grow with them over time is going to remain the case going forward as well. 
Well, thank you very much, Aman, for such an insightful conversation within the life science space. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Look out for REORG's first European full year direct lending rankings in eight weeks' time, where we rank the most active lenders of 2023 split across sector, market segment, ESG and Europe's subregion. And don't miss out our restructuring and advisor rankings as we move into our second year of publication. We hope you can join us next week for another REORG Europe podcast. Until then, have a great week and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.